6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 2 Timothy, chapters 1 and 2. Okay, we're studying what probably was Paul's final epistle, sometimes called Paul's last will and testament. And he's writing this from a dungeon where he's writing a letter of encouragement to his protege, Timothy. Young Timothy is his, his, uh, his son, as he regards him uh, in this faith. And uh, this is his final touching letter to Timothy. And uh, as you know, of the 13 epistles of Paul, uh, well, uh, uh, we have, of course, Romans and Hebrews as the pillars of it, of course. But then we have uh, a group of them that are, seven of them went to churches, and of the seven churches, three were written in the prison. Um, and uh, then we have what we call the pastoral epistles, and that's the ones we're going through now. These are epistles that he wrote directly to pastors. But we'll discover in the end of this letter that the intent was that they, all should, they should be read by many. It wasn't a private letter, so to speak. And so, but let's get, as we to try to set the stage here, refresh ourselves, let's review the events in Paul's life. He, of course, when he was... Adverse to the Christians, he was holding the coats while they stoned Stephen's. So Stephen was, when he was stoned, uh, Paul was standing there holding the coats. But he gets converted on the road to Damascus. Most of you know the story. Many people don't realize that he went, he was in Damascus for about three years, during which he went to Arabia for some indeterminate time. We don't know if he was all three years in Arabia. We know he was there for a total of three years, that is Damascus. But he went in the Arabian desert for some period of time where apparently he was instructed directly by the Lord. But he was forced to ultimately to flee Damascus, in fact, in a basket at night. And he spends then 10 years in his hometown, Tarsus. 10 years teaching and what have you there. He's converted by then, of course. Barnabas, looking for leadership for the emerging church, brings him to Antioch, which serves as the, served as the capital, if you will, for most of the Gentile operations or the early church operations uh, well north of, of uh, Jerusalem. And it's from there that he does his first missionary journey. And during that time, he visits the area that Timothy's in. He may have met Timothy then. But in the meantime, after that missionary journey, is the famous council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. After that is the second missionary journey. And it's the second time on that journey that he goes to Lystra and Derby and all that and encounters um, Timothy again, and this time has him join him. And uh, then is the third missionary journey of the three. But then he's arrested in Judea. This brings you to about 58 AD, roughly. He's imprisoned in Caesarea in part to protect him because they, he was arrested to protect him, frankly. But he's imprisoned in Judea for two years. He appeals to Caesar, and uh, he's shipwrecked on the way to Rome. Very famous event. And he spends uh, three months on Malta after the shipwreck. He finally gets to Rome where he's in house arrest. Many people get these arrests confused. His first arrest, 
he's in a rented house, but he's under house arrest. And uh, so it's, it's there where he, uh, that, that's about where the book of Acts ends, if you will. What, what happens subsequently infer from remarks there in the various letters. It's during this house arrest in Rome that he writes what are called the prison epistles. And, and, and that's Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Now, he's not in prison, really. He's in a home. But the point is, it was while he was under arrest that God, uh, that was God's way of getting him to stop traveling and do some writing. <laughs> and he wrote three very fundamental, very profound epistles. But he's ultimately acquitted of the charges and released. And so that's when he writes his first letter to Timothy that we've just finished. And he also writes Titus, which is a very similar letter to 1 Timothy. But then again, he's arrested and this time put in a dungeon and he realizes this is the end of it. He, see, he knows the end is coming. And that's when he wrote 2 Timothy, the letter that we're about to read. So that's the, a quick perspective of our friend Paul. And uh, about 67 AD, and this time, of course, he's not house arrest. He's in chains. He's treated as a criminal. He has very little light to read by, no sanitation, and he's facing death. Other than that, things are fine. Hmm? And Paul knew his end was near. We also discover that he was deserted by virtually all of his associates in Asia Minor. Asia Minor being the area, that's, that's a province of the Roman Empire, that we know today as Turkey, roughly. And uh, it's interesting that despite the fact that his friends deserted him, he forgave them. We'll discover that in, in the fourth chapter, that uh, may this not be counted against him and so forth. And, but obviously still disappointed and in pain. So loyalty is a big theme in this letter. It emphasizes loyalty among many other things. Loyalty in suffering. Loyalty in service in chapter 2. Loyalty in apostasy. Three different kinds of loyalties really emerge from his concerns of suffering, service, and apostasy. But he also climaxes the Lord's loyalty, loyalty to his servants uh, in de desertion. He ultimately is de beheaded in Rome about 68 AD. So we're probably a year, something less than a year away from that. And before that death, though, he wrote 2 Timothy. And this is his final communication. We always tend to put a special value on a deathbed uh, uh, assertion of some kind. So that can be, that can be uh, given special weight. But the amazing thing to me about this epistle is its note of triumph. Despite all those circumstances, and despite him being deserted, and, and the fact that he's about to be executed, he's the one that's triumphant, He's the one that's encouraging Timothy. I can't get over the ostensible contradiction here. And so, uh, so he's passing the mantle, so to speak, to Timothy, this young, got relatively young guy, and uh, to persevere and so forth. And it's very personal. There's going to be about 25 references to specific individuals before we're finished. So it's a very personal letter. But as we read all these things, let's re realize where we are in the picture. We're in the shoes of Barabbas. And we're in his shoes. Man cannot be saved by perfect obedience. Man cannot be saved by perfect obedience. Because we cannot render it. And we can't be saved by imperfect obedience because God will not accept it. So we need to understand that. Well, the last few chapters of the previous epistle were about duties of officers. We're not going to shift to the second letter where you're going to pick up on the afflictions of the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ. 
It has a number of different labels in the scripture for the church. There are play, first Peter calls it the holy nation, which emphasizes our common citizenship in heaven is the flavor of that. It's also called, uh, spoken of as a kingdom, which emphasizes the believer's common submission to the king of kings and lord of lords. It's a kingdom in the sense that we're part of that in submission to a king. It's also called a priesthood, 1 Peter 2 again, emphasizing the privilege that all, we all have direct access to God. We all have direct access to the one mediator, which is Jesus Christ himself, who is, who is God. So we're all priests in that sense, in a very real sense. Church is called the vine, emphasizing our common connection to life uh, uh, of God and to be able to bear fruit. And uh, it's called a temple, which is based on the fact that we're built on a solid foundation of the apostles' doctrine. And, G and Jesus, of course, is the chief cornerstone of that temple. We have, it's also called a body which emphasizes our common life and our dependence on the head of the body, if you will. Very broadly, many times, it's, the word ecclesia actually means the assembly, the called out people, called, called to be gathered in the presence of God eternally. It's called a flock, like speaking of the shepherdship, if you will, of Christ. It's also called a family, and it, it emphasizes the intimacy, the, the mutual care and openness and, and the love in the family. And that's especially in Timothy. So... You know, it's interesting to contrast the world we live in with Paul's assertions. We, we have, our churches are full of the psychological gospel. What does it mean by that? How to overcome this and that. Twelve steps to fix X. Another twelve steps to fix Y. And how to think creatively. All these do good things, which are not the gospel. But that's the gospel you get from modern pulpits. How do we think affirmatively or positively? <laughs> As if any of the great saints of the past accomplished what they accomplished by thinking positively. Or is it because they humble themselves before the God of gods? This whole theory that we're on our way upward and uh, onward forever. This is the flavor of the modern church, but it's not the gospel. And you take a look at the desperate decay of our society, as it speaks for itself. You look at the churches from a spiritual point of view and notice their decay and their lack of effectiveness. There's the social gospel. It's another offshoot of this. I like the way J. Vernon McGee expressed it. It's a sermonette preached by preacherettes to Christianettes. <laughs> yeah, that'd be funny if it wasn't so true a good is better than evil because it's nicer and gets you into less trouble that's the gospel or another comment here is that it's a church made up of mild-mannered a mild-mannered man standing before a group of mild-mannered people urging them to be more mild-mannered <laughs> I see what Jesus said about it Revelation 3, starting at verse 15. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Boy, that gets to me. That's the Lord Jesus talking. Does this describe the church in America? Painfully, I think so. I think so. It continues... 
He just continues. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with good. You know, it's interesting. These people you see on television, the preachers with their Rolex watches that drive in their limousine behind the buses or ahead of the buses on the trips to Israel. You know what I mean? That's scriptural. Did you know that? These health and wealth preachers, that's scriptural. It's here in the Bible. They say, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But let's go read on. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Naked in the sense of no righteousness. Jesus continues, I, can, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. No, you see, they're blind, poor, and naked. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and what? Well, there's a word you don't hear very much from pulpits, do you? Repent. Turn 1-8 if you're in the Navy. 180 degrees. Head the other way. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. All of us have heard that verse again and again and again, usually used at altar calls. And it's not misapplied. That's a valid use of it, except if you put it in context, it's the ultimate indictment. Because of these seven churches, in each one, he has some concerns, some counsel, some exhortations. Here, in the seventh of the seven letters, he's outside trying to get in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Where is he? Not on the inside. He's outside that church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And the call isn't to the church. It's to the individual. If, anyone, if there's anybody there, if, if any man will hear my voice, maybe one of you, that's the flavor of it. I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. There's an individual call when you study the structure of the letters where in the other case there were group calls. There were, group, you know, there, there were promises made to the group. Here there are no promises made to the group. If one hears his voice, hey, come on, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do things. Interesting. So, he's on the outside trying to get in. Then he gives, then he appends, or I shouldn't say append, it's in the body of the letter, but he has a promise to the overcomer. To him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. It's always fascinated me that the promise of the overcomer in the first three letters is a PS at the end of the letter. On the last four, it's included in the body of the letter. And the last four have an explicit reference to a second coming. So there's, I think there's, there's meaning in those structures. But the important thing here for us is to realize that that promise in verse 21 is conditional. There are seven promises to overcomers that have conditions associated with them. Not to everybody. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down on my father's throne. Seven conditional promises. I encourage you to track those down. There's one on each of the seven letters. They're each conditional. 
They have, they have conditions associated with them. You want to understand what they are. He that overcometh. What is an overcomer? We need to understand that. It's not taught from the pulpits. Very rarely. Very rarely. We have this, we're, we're victims of what some people, Earl uh, Rodebacher calls cheap grace. I've got my get out of hell free card, so my feet on the desk, boy, I'm saved. Why am I saved? Because I'm justified by Christ. Indeed you are. If you've relied on Christ, you are saved. In the present tense, at least. Excuse me, in the past tense, at least. You're saved from the penalty of sin. When the rapture occurs, I believe you'll be raptured. Fine deal. But that says nothing of your inheritance. Your inheritance derives from your behavior after being justified. You've been justified by Christ by relying on him. You are now saved. No question about it. Your passport to heaven is stamped and cannot be unstamped. Christ did it for you. But behavior matters. That will determine your, your inheritance. See, we're really, we're really victims of what some people call Christian socialism. The modern church preaches more on social relations, pacifism, social justice, and all that sort of thing. So it's really an instrument leading to Christian socialism. In contrast to that, when the gospel, the true gospel is preached, men come to Christ and become members of God's forever family. It's a different emphasis altogether. Different emphasis altogether. It's a supernatural event that takes place. The real solution to man's problems cannot come from structures. It will not come from whom you vote for. It comes through the grace of God. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. Don't misunderstand me. But understand where our hope is. Our hope is not in people. It's in Him. I love what Martin Luther said. God creates out of nothing. Until man is nothing, God can't make nothing of him. I like that. God helps, them who help, God helps those who help themselves. No, he doesn't. God helps those who come to the end of themselves. That's really what Martin Luther is suggesting here. The coming apostasy. In this epistle that Paul writes to Timothy, there is an ominous cloud on the horizon that he's going to talk about. And that cloud is not only on his horizon, it's on our horizon. We want to understand that. Apostasy is not due to ignorance. It is deliberate error and heresy. It is intentional. Apostasy is intentional. What is an apostate? One who knows the truths of the gospel and the doctrines of faith and has repudiated them. In Luke 18, verse 8, and also a couple places in the Old Testament, we get this, When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Good question. Willie. There are two departures that we're going to have in focus. The harpazo, the rapture, that's in 1 Thessalonians 4. And the second one is a departure from the faith. Different word, different usage, altogether different. And that's not a popular view today. There are many, many that are committed to a view that the goal of the church is to transform the world by tinkering with its social, political, or economic systems. They're called dominionists, kingdom now types. And many, many, many of your most prominent prominently visible Christian leaders, are actually dominionists. They really hold a view that by working hard, the church can change the world. No, it won't change until the king of kings takes it over by force. These vain optimists have no patience with the doleful words of 2 Timothy. You don't see them preaching from 2 Timothy. You'll see why shortly. The present times that you and I live in today would seem to demonstrate the accuracy of Paul. Let's take a look at it then. And uh, so both Paul 
and Peter seem to emphasize this in their final epistles. Paul here and Peter in 2 Peter. Second letter to Peter, by Peter. And uh, so, and it's interesting that in this, the primary antidote for all the things we're going to unveil here shortly is the Word of God. That's his emphasis all the way through here. Let's just jump in. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. The will of God. There's four wills of God. Did you know that? You can define four of them. His sovereign will, the mystery of his will. Straight enough. Fair enough. His revealed will. Not all of his will is revealed, but his revealed will, which is what? The word of God. His will for mankind, that's salvation. Study of that's called soteriology. And the will for the believer, sanctification. That's his will for the believer. So there's four that are defined. Anyway, Paul to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul regards Timothy as his spiritual son. It's interesting that Paul added mercy to his greeting when he wrote to pastors. When he writes to pastors, he throws, you know, it's grace and peace to you all, but he puts mercy in there if there's pastors involved. Let you think about that one a little bit. See, he knew that pastors have a special need for mercy. Special need for mercy. He continues, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing... I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Do you think he was exaggerating or was he literally specific? I think, he was, I think he means what he says and says what he means. He prayed for them without ceasing night and day. Paul spent a lot of time in prayer. We often overlook that. How's your prayer list? Do you have a systematic prayer list? There, are there people on your list that you pray for every day? I hope... I hope most of you can not honestly nod to that. Do you have a prayer list? Is your pastor on that list? Hope so. I hope you're praying for this ministry. It's a warfare, you know. We covet your prayers. People come up to me at these conferences and things. Chuck, what, what can we do for your ministry? Very simple. Pray for it. They look at me surprised. They, you know, thought I was going to have my hand out or something. No. Pray for your ministry. Everything else take care of itself. But we do cover your prayers. No one else can pray for us like you can. Your prayers are essential. How about your elected representatives? We always complain. We complain. We have a, a rather vocal cat in our household. And uh, when she comes around the corner, she'll whine. She has a very distinctive whine. And I just comment, don't talk to me. I voted for him too, you know. <laughs> Second Timothy, verse 4. Greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. What an accolade. What an accolade. Lois, of course, was his grandmother, probably the one that first led him to the Lord, and the uh, first one in the family to be one Christ in any way, and then his mother Eunice. They're the ones that his father wasn't, wasn't a Jewish, he was a Gentile. But we get the impression the big, the great influence in his life were those two women. And his father was Greek, and so Eunice apparently had not practiced an Orthodox Jewish faith. That's why Paul had Timothy circumcised. 
because so he have a ministry to the Jews, not because he needed to be circumcised. There's a lot of misunderstanding about that. So, but they had seen that he he knew the scriptures. What a great, what a tremendous background that is. And on his first uh, missionary journey, when he came to Lystra, uh, might have been the time that he formally converted, if you will. On his return on the second journey, he called him into the ministry full time with him. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. So there apparently was a formal occasion where Paul laid hands on Timothy. That's an important step. You don't do that lightly. You do that only if you you're, you're, can do so responsibly, the person you're laying hands on. He made Timothy a partner with them. The word is koinonos, interesting, interestingly enough. How many people do you know in ministry that are actually fleeing accountability? I know people that have started a church really as a way to get away from being accountable. It can be the case. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. What a great verse that is to memorize. Whenever you find something that you're troubled by, terrified, remember 2 Timothy 1.7. God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Word fear here actually is, speaks of fearfulness, timidity. It actually be construed as cowardice. It only appears here, by the way. And a sound mind is really uh, an admonishing or calling to a soundness of mind. Moderation, self-control. A disciplined mind is really the thought that's underlying here. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. This whole chapter, chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, can be called the afflictions of the gospel. He's going to talk a lot about being afflicted because of the gospel. And uh, so, a lot of people feel that a call to Christianity is a, it ought to be easy and it's a commitment to our personal lifestyles. No, no, it's a call from, from those personal lifestyles. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Timothy. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music